0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, while the Rugby World Cup rolled on in Japan, the big beast of pay TV here got into bed with the body that runs rugby. They're pretty happy with their hookup, but what about the rest of us? But first, there was concern this week over a couple of TV comedy cancellations and even claims that this might mean a major media company was about to switch off for good.
0: It's not unrealistic or an exaggeration to say that the next move could be for MediaWorks to close down our entire station.
1: Now that seemed like a bit of a stretch at the time, but not so much, just a couple of days later. As Sky struggled to get a foothold in New Zealand television broadcasting, Things turned
2: pear-shaped for TV3. The receivers moved into TV3 today and their first decision was to make sure the network stayed on air. The receivers sent a representative to the
1: TV3 building... That was a brief bit of the series-ending episode of Making New Zealand, which screened last Sunday night on Prime TV. That series is all about how important aspects of this country were built, but last Sunday's episode was all about the history of broadcasting in New Zealand. Now TV3 is a significant part of that. It was the first private channel to emerge after the reforms of 1989, but as you heard there, it soon went bust, trying to compete commercially with the incumbent state-owned TVNZ. Last weekend's Making New Zealand programme explained that the government had to step in at the time to save TV3. The only way that TV3 was going to be uh, recovered from this crisis was for the government to go back to the 1989 Broadcasting Act and literally delete the clause that talked about limits on the foreign ownership of New Zealand media in order to allow Can West to buy TV3. The Canadians did indeed buy in, TV3 stayed on, and the rest is history. But 30 years on, history repeated this week sort of. The current bosses of the company are now looking for new owners again, and again loudly complaining that it's not in a fair fight with TVNZ, and urging the government to help it out.
2: These are ultimately commercial decisions,
0: and so really my acknowledgement today though is for the uncertainty that I recognise that creates for those who are working in that field.
1: Last Friday, broadcasting company MediaWorks announced it intends to sell its television operations but retain its radio business. MediaWorks owns the free-to-air channels 3, 3 3Life and Bravo and around half of the country's commercial radio stations. The company's Auckland offices and studios will also be put on the market and they're looking for a new buyer which will have the option to lease the premises if it intends to keep the channels running. In recent years the TV side of MediaWorks has struggled to break even while the radio networks have remained profitable and for the past two years the top brass at the company have been warning that the free-to-air television market is unsustainable in New Zealand. So finding a buyer for the channels will be no easy task and in the meantime the future of them is uncertain. MediaWorks TV chief executive Michael Anderson says he believes the television operation can be separated for the rest of the company and be profitable under a new owner.
3: The TV business has been in loss since I, I got here and, and was in loss for a number of years before that. Over the last number of years we've really been able to reduce that loss very significantly um, to the point of moving towards breakeven. This year the market has, um, has brought into stark relief that all of those trends make it a very uncertain um, Position makes it very, very difficult to operationally, from our position, from our uh, competitive position, makes it very difficult to get to a sustainable profit.
1: The chief executive of MediaWorks, Michael Anderson, speaking on RNZ's Checkpoint programme last Friday. There he was describing MediaWorks TV channels as good businesses in a bad market, one he believes is skewed by the dominant presence of state-owned TVNZ, which he reckons is insulated from some of the same commercial pressures that his channels face. Michael Anderson has insisted that three and the other channels won't be closed by Christmas, a prospect that some media reports have floated, but he wouldn't say just how long the company would keep them on the air if they don't find a buyer quickly, or at all. However, one thing on which many pundits were singing from the same song sheet as Michael Anderson was that the company's news service would be missed if it was closed down or cut back.
3: Any local news is an important asset for any any country. I think it's more important for New Zealand than than in most because you don't have a lot of diversity here. You've got everywhere you look, you've got businesses that are challenged, news businesses that are challenged. Um, you've got two free-to-air, you've got two news, news um, uh, two newspapers, and you've got obviously um, RNZ, which is uh, which is is not a, a um, commercial beast. But if, when you look at it. You, It's very important to maintain that diversity and so um, we're very proud of what News Hub has become and what it achieves and what it delivers and we're very conscious that, that a functioning democracy needs diversity of news.
2: Then why sell it?
3: Because we would hope that a new buyer will find a way to be able to continue that and potentially even resource it more effectively than we've been able to.
1: From TV3's earliest days back in 1989 right through to 2017, Mark Jennings was at the heart of the company's news operation. He served as its head of news for many years. He worked through several upheavals in that time, and he knows the media market well. So what future does he think the company's TV channels and its news service have now?
4: MediaWorks is basically giving up on television. It's tried to make it profitable, and it's failed, It's tried to sell radio and television as a package and now essentially it's admitting defeat and trying to carve off the television arm. But I think calling it a sale is stretching it. I think it'll be free to a good home. I think they're really going to struggle to find a buyer. But even being given away free, whoever takes it over... Is probably staring at coping with losses of around five to ten million a year, and they'd have to have a pretty good plan to turn that around. I mean, one of the reasons why Mediaworks hasn't been able to sell the company as a whole is because nobody wants the television arm. Everybody knows that in this market, a free-to-air television station doesn't have a particularly rosy future. And I think that's why MediaWorks have been lobbying so hard at trying to get the government to kind of restructure the television industry in this country, because that's really the only hope of, I guess, changing the landscape and then interesting a buyer.
1: And Mark, we know that this is a work in progress. Uh, the Broadcasting and Digital Media Minister, Chris Farfoy, he's talked about uh, reforming policy, announcing something by the end of the year, and uh, he's signalled that he's worried about media diversity. And do you think this announcement actually changes what the government might have been thinking?
4: You're right in that Farfoy and the government have been looking at this and have been worried about this. But I think it's too late for MediaWorks. Any change that Farfoy might um, instigate and let's say he did decide to make TV One a non-commercial station like MediaWorks wants him to. That process would take at least 12 months, possibly even 24 months. MediaWorks just don't have that time. They they are out of money um, from a television point of view, and Oaktree, its owner, is just out of patience. It, it's had a it's had enough of this. So. That's why we've seen executives like the CEO, Michael Anderson, um, the head of news, uh, Hal Crawford, getting really wound up about it um, because they know time's up. And I I just don't think the government can come to the party soon enough for them.
1: And uh, you've been there, of course, for many, many years, right at the heart of the operation as as head of news. Uh, And I wonder, uh, the joining together of parts of the company, the creation of the News Hub brand and so on, uh, under under a, a previous management regime, that must make it actually harder to separate out the, country, uh, the company into its um, profitable radio and advertising section and its uh, loss-making or struggle-to-break-even TV operation?
4: Yes. Uh, the integration of the company has been a failure. And right back, it was opposed by a lot of the experienced executives uh, within MediaWorks, um, most, including myself, knew that it wasn't a good strategy, that there isn't the synergies between radio and TV that people might think there are, just as just there isn't between, say, newspapers and radio. There are some, but they are really small, and it's not the panacea. And they are also very different mediums, And they attract very different people. And even some of the previous CEOs of MediaWorks resisted it because they knew it wasn't going to work.
1: I mean, Oaktree, Mark, the owners, the offshore owners, they did uh, sanction that uh, mashing together at a company, the creation of News Hub, and that was a one-off cost. They've also serviced the debt, some tens of millions of dollars they've, they've put in to keep it afloat. They have shown some level of commitment to keeping it going. Um, do you think it, it reached a point where they simply weren't prepared to wear those losses and service those debts anymore?
4: Well, I think you're right in that they, they have shown uh, plenty of commitment and plenty of patience. But what they didn't have when they arrived uh, as owners was any media knowledge. It's taken them a long time to learn, I guess, what the New Zealand television market is all about. Maybe integration of radio and TV is not going to yield the results they thought it might. Well, they've certainly pumped in plenty of cash and they've kept it going. Uh, earlier this year, they, they gave Anderson um, an ultimatum that if he couldn't turn it round, they were going to close it. And I think we're now seeing them basically playing that card. Uh, so it, it's a last roll of the dice here, this um, can we sell it
1: approach. Well, things are in limbo, I guess, uh, while they pursue the sales process, to use the, the language in their, in their press release. But what what... Timeline? Do you, do we think might be an operation here? Could we even guess at the lifespan of these channels? Or if they struggle to find a buyer, is it conceivable that the channels, as we know them, and the News Service News Hub, uh, could could simply close down in you know the relatively short term?
4: It's hard to put a timeline on any of this because there's also going to have to be an unpicking uh, of the two companies. How's radio going to get a news service? Is there going to be a contract in place with television to provide that? If you're the radio owner, you're going to go, well, I want the lowest cost uh, product possible. Um, Radio news for music stations is really a commodity play. Um, It's not a a high branded uh, product like it is in television. So there's a lot of, I guess, issues around separation and i think unless that's been going on in the background uh, if it was starting now uh, that will take a bit of time um buyers of the television side will also i guess want to do significant due diligence because what are the contracts around programming um let's just take the project for instance that's a license show uh from network 10 in australia i don't know how long that license runs um What would they do uh, in terms of exiting that? There's a huge number of questions in all this. So again, I think it would be well into next year before any sale process is uh, completed. But clearly today, the flag went up.
1: And Mark, you've lived through a lot of upheavals in your time at that business at a fairly senior level. Um, For example, it went into receivership back in, in 2015 when the management regime changed. I mean, is this, though... Perhaps the most serious situation that it's faced uh, since you know that receivership, um, you know, way back in I think it was 1990 when it was uh, trying to get off the ground and the law had to be changed to allow uh, foreign owners from Canada uh, to come in and uh, and rescue it.
4: I think this is the most uh, serious and crunch time in TV3's history. Not only does it have the issues that it's always had in this market, uh, which is dominated by TVNZ. But the whole media landscape has changed. Facebook, Google, Netflix didn't even really exist. Now they take nine-tenths of every uh, digital advertising dollar. So I think it is uh, much more serious for the future. And I think this is where the government will be concerned. It really won't want to lose... uh, the television news service um, out of MediaWorks programs, comedy shows, reality shows, I don't think anybody's going to be too fussed about that. But to lose a really important news network, uh, I think is troubling. And I think that's where the government will be thinking about perhaps some short-term or you know, earlier intervention than it might have been able to um, get through uh, in a wider context, if you know what I
1: mean. Anything the government you think should or, or even must do as a result of this change? Does it does it change for you or what, what do you think they, they ought to put in place now for this media policy review we know that they're working on?
4: Well, nobody exactly knows what this media policy that they are working on entails. But it's a really, really tough question. What do you do? Um, but the trouble is now... It's not just the television stations that get funding from NZ On Air. Every platform, including stuff, Me. my own company, Newsroom, The Spin-Off, Radio New Zealand, we all are asking NZ On Air for funding. So it's a it's very difficult situation for the government. But I do think we will see something
1: from them. Uh, but it's just hard to know what it will be. That was Mark Jennings, the co-editor of the online news service newsroom.co.nz, formerly the head of news at MediaWorks for many, many years. The company this week announced it's trying to sell its TV operations. Earlier in the week, there was a flurry when news broke of cutbacks in local programming at MediaWorks main TV channel 3. Long-running comedy show Seven Days will be cut back to just 12 episodes next year, and just after its debut series concluded last week, the channel's owner MediaWorks said that Guy Williams' New Zealand Today won't be back at all next year. There are also claims this week, which MediaWorks didn't confirm or deny, that the scandal-hit but well-watched reality show Married at First Sight won't be made in 2020 either. Now, entertainment programmes come and go all the time and, as we now know, these are very tight times for broadcasters, MediaWorks especially, so news of those changes wasn't especially surprising. But after recent speculation that Three's owner MediaWorks was struggling to stay afloat financially, pundits saw this week's news as a sign that the end really could be nigh for MediaWorks TV channels. And that was not exactly dispelled for anyone who was watching Three's primetime current affairs show The Project on Wednesday.
0: It's not unrealistic or an exaggeration to say that the next move could be for MediaWorks to close down our entire station. You'll be back the way it was in the 80s with only one choice of TV news.
1: Good evening, Network News for Wednesday the 18th of November. Project co-host Jesse Mulligan there, raising the prospect of the demise of his TV employer on its own main TV channel on Wednesday. Now, this isn't the first time that's happened. Back in August, AM show host Duncan Garner turned the lights out in the studio when calling on the Broadcasting Minister for help.
2: I have a challenge for the Broadcasting Minister, Chris Fafoi. Um Step in and save New Zealand television and New Zealand news channels before it's too late and, and the lights somehow go out. Oh, it's too late. (laughs) But Chris, I know you're up for this. There's money in the kitty. Going back to the bad old Stalinist days of
1: Putin's channel only and no one else sort of exists, it's simply not an option, surely. You've got to help. And back then, Duncan Garner wasn't exactly going rogue by talking down his own company and painting TVNZ as the USSR. The same day, an interview with MediaWorks Chief Executive Michael Anderson was published in which he said its position was unsustainable. And MediaWorks Chief of News Hal Crawford published a piece on the NewsHub website arguing that the New Zealand TV industry was broken and skewed in favour of TVNZ. And that claim was also served up to the project's viewers last Wednesday by Jesse Mulligan.
0: So, what's the problem? Well, 3 has a big competitor. You will have heard of it, TVNZ. They do everything they can to take viewers off 3. That's what they should do. But at the moment, it's not a level playing field. TVNZ do what we do. They make the highest rating shows they can, and then they sell advertising. But unlike 3, if their budget doesn't add up, they get to say to their owner, the government, sorry, but we're going to lose $17 million this year, and the government says, "What ifs? In the toughest market in media history, our government has allowed a competitor to turn into a not-for-profit. And it's wished the rest of us good luck.
1: Now, that $17 million loss is a forecast one for next year and not an actual one delivered by TVNZ. But it's not the first time that state-owned TVNZ has been able to forego delivering a dividend to the Crown as it's supposed to do. And you could see that that would be jarring for Jesse Mulligan and anyone else at MediaWorks worried about keeping those loss-making TV channels on the air. MediaWorks has lobbied the government for years to turn TV1 into a non-commercial channel to boost its own share of the TV ad market, but so far none of this has moved the government. But broadcasting policy is now under review. The reason that MediaWorks and their on-screen talent are now pleading and pressuring the Minister of Broadcasting, Chris Farfoy, on air like this.
0: Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy has said he'll announce a new policy on broadcasting before the end of the year. Well, this week's news shows he's already waited too long. If you want three around to keep New Zealanders laughing and to keep all these guys honest, the time to act was yesterday. Now, as we
1: heard there, Jesse Mulligan's crisis claims were pegged to the news that Three had slashed back its comedy offerings for 2020. And Jesse Mulligan opened his editorial by telling viewers those comedies were not being cancelled and cut back because people weren't watching them, because of
0: TVNZ. The government is in competition with a private business and with an unlimited pot of taxpayer money to dip into. Well, who do you reckon is going to win?
1: Now, as a Crown-owned company, TVNZ does not have access to unlimited taxpayers' money, and what Jesse Mulligan didn't mention at all was that Three's comedies have had plenty of taxpayers' money via the government's broadcasting funding agency, New Zealand On Air. Seven Days has been on air for a decade, thanks to government broadcasting policy. As recently as July, New Zealand On Air made a funding commitment of $1.2 million for 32 more episodes of Seven Days in 2020. And in its decade on the air, the program's had $7.5 million of public money. And that's a lot for a relatively simple studio-based panel show using mostly in-house talent like Di Henwood and Jeremy Corbett. And likewise for New Zealand Today, the debut series of which was funded to the tune of more than half a million dollars, covering the vast bulk of its costs. Its star Guy Williams, who was a guest on the project just last week, told the spin-off website this week a second series was likely to get New Zealand on-air funding and he was expecting a green light from the network any day. So, the real issue then is not what TV3's Friday night comedy lineup will be in 2020, but how we're spending almost a quarter of a billion dollars every year on public broadcasting and media now, and why.
0: The Pool B match between New Zealand and Italy in the city of Toyota will be cancelled. The Pool C match between England and France at Yokohama Stadium will be cancelled. As you can imagine, the decision to cancel these matches has not been taken lightly.
1: That was Alan Gilpin, the head of the Rugby World Cup, announcing the controversial cancellation of pool games last weekend, including the All Blacks versus Italy. And as we mentioned last weekend here on Media Watch, broadcasters around the world were pretty ropeable about that. Last Sunday, there were even reports that broadcasting bosses were out for big sums in compensation. And that's just one example of the tensions that can arise when broadcasters don't get what they want from the bodies that are responsible for the sports they put on air. But last Monday, there was a case of a broadcaster Broadcaster and one sports top brass acting in perfect harmony.
3: Hello, I'm Goran Paladin and welcome to a new era in rugby. We are in the studios of Sky Sport News to officially announce the broadcasting partnership between Sky Sport and Sansa. In effect, it's an extension of the existing Sansa broadcast rights. That
1: press conference last Monday in Sky Sports TV studio was run with the slickness of a TV broadcast. It revealed that the pay TV company Sky had retained live exclusive rights to top-grade rugby that have been the cornerstone of its business for a quarter of a century in exchange for an undisclosed sum of hundreds of millions of dollars and a 5% stake in Sky TV itself. Now, there are cases overseas of media companies investing in sports franchises and clubs or creating joint ventures to broadcast their content. But a sports body taking an equity stake in a media partner seemed to be a world first. Afterwards, New Zealand rugby's chair Brent Impey told RNZ reporter Madison Reedy it was a deal that rugby in New Zealand really needed. The cost of rugby continues
2: to accelerate, whether it's player salaries at the top level, whole organisation of the game, so it's a very hungry beast, uh, New Zealand rugby, so we needed to make sure that we're financially secure going into the future, um, otherwise we would have had to cut uh, costs, and
1: cutting costs in this uh, game is just cutting costs of uh, rugby programmes, which is the last thing we wanted to do. But there was nothing for other interested parties to celebrate, such as Spark, for example, which outbid Sky on cricket rights last week with an offer that Sky's boss Martin Stewart said in that same press conference, Sky couldn't come anywhere near. But New Zealand Rugby Chair Brent Impey told reporters at that announcement they did the deal with Sky without considering any other bids.
2: Um, We had discussions with um, with Spark uh, earlier in the year, uh, and so we were aware of... uh, what they were pitching, where they are at, um, so we didn't go into, uh, into this situation without uh, a lot of knowledge of, uh, of Sparks' uh, position. But no, we made the decision um, over the weekend that we would not go to market, that we would settle with Sky.
1: From Japan, New Zealand Rugby's chief executive Steve Tu also insisted they wouldn't have got a better deal elsewhere, and Sky TV's boss Martin Stewart said it was win-win for both of them.
5: We have long known that there is mutual benefit when each of us succeeds, and we are very pleased that New Zealand rugby is becoming a shareholder.
1: However, some analysts pointed out that this is probably also likely to be an investment in keeping the rights with Sky for even longer than the five-year term they've just agreed. In The Herald, for example, tech writer Chris Keel said it puts New Zealand rugby in a completely conflicted position because... The next time Sansa or Rugby World Cup rights come up for grabs, it will diminish its investment in Sky if New Zealand rugby punts for Spark or a new contender like Amazon. And that possibility prompted RNZ's Madison Reedy to put this question to Brent Impey.
5: Where
2: does this then leave New Zealand rugby when Sky is bidding for more sports rights, particularly rugby rights? Is that not a conflict of interest? Uh, no, I can't see it. as a conflict of interest. If they're bidding for more rugby rights, well, that's uh, um, exactly uh, synergistic with us because uh, we want them to bid for, uh, for more rugby rights and, um, and other sports. Um, Sky has uh, signalled a, a new direction and uh, we support uh, that new direction. I, I can't see a conflict of interest. And at 5%, it's not, a, not an issue.
1: But that would become an issue if cash-strapped Sky surrenders more of itself in future deals than the 5% stake it's already handed over to New Zealand rugby. In Checkpoint's Lisa Owen put Sky's CEO Martin Stewart on the spot about that later on Monday in this intriguing exchange.
2: Do you anticipate that there will be more deals that involve equity?
5: No, I don't, no. I think that, you, I think that from the point of view of New Zealand sport, Uh, Rugby is clearly the premier sport in the country. Uh, It has a very unique position within uh, the psyche of uh, New Zealanders. Uh, I think it was appropriate um, for us to do the deal that we've done.
2: So Uh, only for the top shelf then, only for rugby, equity, you were prepared to give up?
5: I I don't see that it's a relevant discussion for other sports. We are very, very pleased with the uh, other relationships that we have. Uh, We make sure that we look at those relationships and make sure uh, that... Um, that we are giving value um, to the particular sports code. But could New
2: Zealand uh, Rugby come back for a bit more next time round? Could that still be on the table, more equity, with future deals to New Zealand Rugby?
5: I, I think that what we're looking at is an overall package of what we've put, uh, put on the table for, for New Zealand Rugby. Um, how we develop uh, together over the next six years uh, remains to be seen. I think that we have a bright future together.
1: The boss of Sky TV, Martin Stewart, talking to Lisa Owen there on RNZ's Checkpoint last Monday. Now on its website that night, Checkpoint described that as the boss of Sky TV ruling out giving away any more Sky shares to secure other sports rights. But as far as rugby rights were concerned, Martin Stewart had merely said that he didn't anticipate any further deal involving equity in Sky. And before Monday's announcement, no one else had anticipated the 5% equity deal either. In a comment piece published by the New Zealand Herald on Monday, telecommunications and IT lawyer Michael Wigley reckoned that the deal, which was approved by Sky shareholders as expected on Thursday, might also need clearance from the Commerce Commission to go any further. Sky in its announcement this morning to the market correctly stated that it is the only platform that can provide the footy over all three of satellite TV, free-to-air, prime and online. That's Monopoly Talk and New Zealand Rugby has the Monopoly rights over live rugby and that is hot property. So it remains to be seen if the business watchdog does see any case to answer. But outside of the business and financial aspects of all of this, What about the programming? One Media Watch listener this week wrote to us to ask... Can we really expect the commentators and presenters to be critical of New Zealand rugby? We already have cheerleading on Sky with many former players dominating its programmes. And this was a question that was also raised at the announcement on Monday when TVNZ reporter Laura Jaynes asked this.
2: Can you comment on what it means um, for the impartiality of Sky's rugby coverage and commentary um, when it involves Sky commentating on a (laughs) co-owner?
1: Well, you could... (laughs) And after that awkward pause, Skye's Martin Stewart answered like this. We don't
5: influence the editorial on our shows in any way. I don't think New Zealand rugby would expect us to. I think the value of of our our coverage is that it's actually driven by people with a deep passion for rugby, a deep understanding of rugby and a deep experience of playing the game, watching the game, coaching in the game. Uh, I think if we tried in any way to limit uh, their contributions... Uh, then the viewers would, would sense that inauth- inauthenticity and, uh, and we, wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't have the successful shows that we have.
1: Well, one journalist who's not expecting any challenging and independent perspectives on New Zealand rugby's affairs on Sky in the future is the Herald sports editor-at-large, Dylan Cleaver. In the Herald on Monday, he wrote that Sky has positioned itself as little more than an in-house production company for New Zealand rugby. And he added... Given the most journalism-averse national sporting organisation in the country now has a stake in the company, it's difficult to foresee a much-needed change of direction towards a punchier product. Sky has always been horrendous at covering genuine rugby issues. It's brilliant at covering matches, world-leading in many respects, but it's like a beautifully designed living room without any furniture. With the cricket broadcast deals done last week and the big rugby one this week, the thick end of a billion dollars has been poured into the two top sports in this country. As the Herald's Dylan Cleaver put it in the paper this week, it's just a shame that right now the only losers in all this seem to be the one sector that's meant to benefit most from competition, the consumer. That's all from the Media Watch team for this week. We'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.